Hey everybody, this is Pastor Dan Jackson with Jacob's Well Church. Due to the spread of the coronavirus, on Sunday, March 22, 2020, we started posting online video Sunday virtual church services. The audio you are about to listen to is taken from the video footage of one of those virtual church services. Our hope and prayer is that through this message, God would minister to you, draw you closer to himself, and strengthen you to live for his glory. To watch videos of our church services, or to connect to Jacob's Well Church, or to just get more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit our website at www.jacobswellgb.org. Good morning, Jacob's Well family and friends. Have you heard the good news? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. I have a couple announcements for you today before we dive into God's word. First off, during this time of quarantine, communication is vitally important. And so no matter where you are in the country or in the world, I want to encourage you to sign up for our weekly well. It's an email that goes out every single Monday. And you can sign up for that by emailing Angie at admin at jacobswellgb.org. Also want to encourage you to connect to our Facebook page. Uh, on there, we have people sharing testimonies of what God is up to. I'm also giving a midweek encouragement and we're providing other videos and other fun things on there as well. So I encourage you to subscribe to our Facebook page. I don't know if you've heard yet about the Dwell Bible app, but it's amazing. It's an awesome resource to hear God's word in a variety of creative forms. For example, there's a playlist called Faith Over Fear in uncertain times. And so uh, in order to get that Bible app, it does cost money, but for us, it is free at this time. You have to get it through the church. And so if you want to download that Dwell Bible app, just check out the notes attached to this video, or you can go to our Facebook page and get more information there as well. A new episode of Getting the Gospel Out is now available to you. In this episode of the podcast, we discuss the question, what Bible verses can I use in order to share the good news of Jesus with others? So please check that out on Apple Podcasts or at gettingthegospelout.org. If you would like to give a tithe or offering to the church but are not sure how, uh, you can either mail a check into the church or you can send it electronically through your bank. On details on how to do that, just go on our webpage and you can click on virtual church at the top. And then there's a drop down menu that says tithe and offering and the details on how to do that are listed there. We do also have an Easter message from our children's ministry director, Katie Horton. Uh, you can check out that Easter message for children either on Facebook or our YouTube channel or on our website. Finally, kids, last time I gave you assignment where you are to draw a picture a picture of something that you see uh, or hear about in the sermon or a picture of what you think that first Palm Sunday was like. And you guys did an amazing job, as you can see. There's even a picture of me in there, um, which is not the most flattering, but it's probably pretty accurate. Anyways, all that to say, I now have an assignment for you to do today. I need you to make two signs, okay? The first sign should say, Christ is risen. And then the second sign should say, he is risen indeed, okay? So I need you to draw those 
letters onto a piece of paper and then decorate and color them. My hope is that after we're done today, that you can use that uh, as decoration in your room and we'll actually use it at the end of the sermon. And so if you would, please make those signs. Parents, uh, if you would, if you have younger children, maybe you can do block letters for them here during the fellowship time when you pause the video and then they can color it in during the sermon. Finally, usually during this part of our service, we have a fellowship time in order to stretch our legs, grab some coffee, grab anything you might need. So if you need to grab a Bible, grab a paper, uh, start making those signs for your kids so they can color them in, feel free to do that right now. Welcome back. Have you ever heard the story of Sid Finch? If you have, please don't ruin the ending for others. But in 1985, there was an article published in Sports Illustrator by writer George Plimpton, who broke the biggest news in New York Mets history. Plimpton wrote about a rookie baseball pitcher in training with the New York Mets, and his name was Sid Finch. The Sports Illustrated article described Sid Finch as an eccentric, unknown, up-and-coming rookie pitcher. Sid grew up in an English orphanage, was adopted by an archaeologist after pursuing a career in playing the French horn. At the age of 27, Sid Finch decided to play baseball. He wore only one shoe when pitching, which was a heavy hiker's boot. And the amazing thing about Sid Finch is that he could pitch a fastball at an amazing 168 miles per hour, breaking the previous record of a puny 104 miles per hour. As you can imagine, Mets fans were ecstatic about the report because this meant that they were virtually a lock for winning the World Series. Reporters were sent in from all over the country to cover this story, and you could imagine their excitement as they saw Sid Finch's locker placed right next to Daryl Strawberry's. With all of these excited fans... What they had failed to realize is that the article was posted in Sports Illustrated on April 1st, 1985. That's right. It was all a hoax, an April Fool's joke. Initially, many fans felt disappointed and a little bit embarrassed, but in the end, everybody had a good laugh at the article. And the hoax didn't matter all that much anyways, because just the next year, the Mets won the World Series. Some hoaxes are a small deal, like the curious case of Sid Finch. It may have disappointed some Mets fans for a time, but really in the, in the end, it didn't impact their life and it certainly didn't impact our life. Some hoaxes, though, are a big deal, just as those who lost their life savings to Bernie Madoff. That host was a big deal. Some hoaxes are small deals. Some hoaxes are big deals. Let me ask you this. If the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus is a hoax, if it was a story made up by only a few guys in a locked room, how big of a deal is it? I mean, it happened 2,000 years ago. Does it really matter to your life at all if the resurrection of Jesus is true or if it's just a hoax? In today's passage, the Apostle Paul makes that crystal clear. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or it will be printed on the screen here as well. 
We are on week two of a three-week series on 1 Corinthians 15, which is the most extensive chapter in the Bible on the topic of the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you would, read along with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we'll be reading from verses 12 through verse 34. This is God's word. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. When he delivers the kingdom, to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, By my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain? If, humanly speaking, I fought wild beasts at Ephesus, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right and do not go on sinning for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that in a world full of death that you will breathe afresh into us the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That even in the midst of death, we can have life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In 2007, a documentary was released called The Lost Tomb of Jesus. And it claimed to potentially have uncovered the bones of Jesus. Now, the film has been discredited. 
But near the end of the film, J. Dominic Crusen, a New Testament scholar, commented that if we had the bones of Jesus, it wouldn't affect his faith at all. He takes the resurrection as a metaphor or as a spiritual resurrection and not a physical resurrection. Now, this film has, again, been overwhelmingly discredited. But let me ask you this question. Is the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus really that important to the Christian faith? And what we see in today's passage is that according to the Apostle Paul, the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus is not just a small deal or even a big deal. It is an everything deal. In other words, all of Christianity and everything in the world and in the world to come hinges on this one event, the historical, bodily resurrection of Jesus. Last week, we looked at the first 11 verses of this chapter in which Paul gives the overwhelming evidence for this resurrection. If you've not listened to it or watched it, I encourage you to go back and do so. But quickly, just to recap, Paul proves the resurrection of Jesus is real because it was in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. There were over 300 prophecies in the Old Testament about the birth, life, death, and resurrection of the coming Savior. And Jesus fulfilled every single one of them. The other proof of the resurrection is the New Testament witnesses. For example, the apostles saw and heard and touched the resurrected Jesus. The apostle Paul, who is writing this letter and who was converted after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus, also saw the resurrected Jesus with his own eyes. Furthermore, Paul says that over 500 people saw the resurrected Jesus at one time, most of whom, he says, are still alive. So you can go talk to them and ask them if you are skeptical. The evidence for the resurrection of Christ is so overwhelming that even non-Christian historian Josephus recorded that when Pilate, upon the accusations of the first men amongst us, condemned Jesus to be crucified, those who had formerly loved him did not cease to follow him. For he appeared to them on the third day, living again, and as the divine prophets foretold, along with a myriad of other marvelous things concerning him. And so today, we are not going to focus anymore on the evidence of the resurrection. That was last week's passage. You can check out the sermon. Today, we want to look at the implications of the resurrection. And the first implication is this. Since Christ is risen, our faith is effectual. That is, our faith is effective. It is powerful. It is fruitful. Paul begins this passage by confronting a heresy in the church. The heresy basically said that there is no resurrection at all for anyone. And the apostle Paul says this in verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul's referring back to the overwhelming evidence that he just presented a few verses earlier. And Paul is saying, listen, if Jesus has raised from the dead, how can you say there is no resurrection from the dead for anyone? Paul then reverses his argument in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Paul continues now by telling us the necessity of the resurrection to Christianity for our faith to be effectual. Verse 14, he says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. 
We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. In the original Greek, the word vain, used twice in verse 14, is the word kinos. And it is used to describe something that is empty, something that is hollow, devoid of truth, without effect. And Paul says his preaching and their faith has no power, no substance, no effect if Jesus has not raised from the dead. Furthermore, furthermore, Paul's ministry is a sham because the God he is preaching about, he is completely misrepresenting if Jesus is still dead. Verse 16, he goes on and says, For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, and this is key, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Paul says, if Jesus is not alive, your faith is worthless. The Greek word here for futile is matios, which means devoid of force, devoid of truth, devoid of success, devoid of results. It is useless with no purpose. And the Apostle Paul is saying this about their faith. If Jesus has not raised from the dead, their faith is futile. Can you hear how heavy these words are for the claims of Christianity? If Jesus is still dead, if he's still in the grave, if he didn't raise, if he's not alive right now, our faith is absolutely truthless, powerless, and hopeless. But since Jesus rose from the dead, all of that is turned around. Since Jesus has risen, our faith is no longer futile. We are no longer in our sins, as verse 17 says. Now, what does it mean to be in your sins? Well, it means that if Jesus is not risen, you are still in the filth of your sin, the power of your sin, and the condemnation of your sin. But since Christ is risen, for those who have placed their faith in him, This is the good news. We are no longer in our sins. We are no longer reduced to the filth of our sin. We are no longer enslaved to the power of our sin. We are no longer condemned to the penalty of our sin. That's why Paul says in verse 3 of this chapter, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The Bible tells us the fair punishment for our sin is death. In other words, because of your sin, you deserve to die. But not only that, you deserve the just punishment of God for all eternity, forever and ever. That's what we deserve. That is what is supremely fair. But what is wonderfully unfair is that the perfect Holy, sinless Son of God loved us so much that for those who believe, he took on our sin and our punishment upon the cross. The punishment being not only death, but also the wrath of God. And how do we know that all of our sin is paid for? How do we know that Jesus did not just take some of our sin, but that he took every ounce of God's wrath that we deserve? We know our sin is paid in full because of the resurrection. 
If there was more debt to be paid for your sin, Jesus would still be dead paying for your sin. But Jesus has been raised from the dead because the payment for your sin has been finished. Think of it this way. I love this illustration. I've used it before. Have you ever been shopping at Walmart? And after you check out, you go through the exit doors and the alarm goes off. Like maybe you have stolen something. And then the Walmart worker comes up to you, friendly, but with a suspicious look in their eye. And you're afraid you're going to be thrown into Walmart prison. What do you do in that moment? You start patting your pockets. Why? Because you are looking for the receipt. Because you know they want to ensure that your debt has been paid, not in part, but in full. And so they look at the receipt. And then they look in your cart. And then the heavens open up and they pull out the beautiful highlighter and swipe it across the receipt and say, you are free to go. And a calm comes over your soul and you walk out the door rejoicing and declaring in your heart, ha ha, I am free. You can bind me no more. The debt has been paid in full. Christian, Christ's resurrected body is your heavenly receipt that the debt has been paid in full. Your faith in Christ is only effectual. That is, it only has an effect. It only possesses power for the forgiveness of your sins. If and only if Jesus has died and been bodily raised from the dead. And so just to recap, because Christ is risen, your faith in Christ is not futile. Your faith in Christ is effectual to pay your debt in full so that you are no longer in your sin. Since Christ is risen, not only is our faith effectual, but our future is hopeful. Now, before we look back into this passage, it's important to distinguish the way we use the word hope and the way that the Bible uses the word hope. When we say hope for something, like we hope life returns to normal in two weeks, We have no certainty of that. It's our wish, it's our desire, but we don't know if it's going to come true. But in the Bible, the word hope is something that is certain and unchanging. Like, we hope the summer is coming or that the sun will come up tomorrow. We know that that's going to happen if Christ doesn't return. Biblically, hope is a certain hope, okay? Now, Paul highlights for us two ways that our future has this certain hope. First, for those who trust in Christ, we have a certain hope in our future resurrection. Verse 17 says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. Metaphorically, to perish means to be destroyed. And Paul is saying, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, our loved ones who have trusted in Christ, our parents, our grandparents, our siblings, our children, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, they have simply dissolved away. This is what much of the world believes. You live and then you die. And that's it. And there is no hope in that at all. But this is not what the resurrection proclaims. The resurrection proclaims that death is but a nap for our bodies between now and Christ's return. You see, the New Testament frequently uses this euphemism of sleep for the death of believers to emphasize that although their soul goes to be with the Lord immediately, their body temporarily is asleep. It is dead, just like Christ's body 
was temporarily asleep or dead. Verse 19 continues and says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Notice here, Paul is, is inferring that in Christ we do have hope in this life. But if our hope is confined only to this life, then Christians who long and live for the world to come are to be pitied. We are the world's fools. We are the most miserable of people because the resurrection and everlasting life with God is our ultimate hope. And if Jesus has not been raised, when we die, we will not only be embarrassed, we will be severely disappointed. Verse 20 goes on. And he says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Paul is using Old Testament imagery here in which the people of God would bring the first fruits of their harvest into the temple as an offering to the Lord. And it was not only prior to the main harvest, but it was also an assurance that the rest of the harvest was coming. Verse 21, he says, for as by a man came death, talking about Adam, By a man comes also the resurrection of the dead, talking about Jesus. For as in Adam all died, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. The Bible tells us that in creation, God made Adam and Eve holy and happy. And God promised this life of holiness and happiness and relationship with him contingent on one command that they not eat of the forbidden fruit. And of course, as you know, they ate the forbidden fruit and opened up, in a sense, Pandora's box. They unleashed death and decay and turmoil into the world. As a result, humanity's relationship with God was cut off and sin had been passed down from generation to generation to generation down to us. And as we said earlier, the consequence of this sin is death. All of us are going to die. It might be today, it might be tomorrow, it might be a hundred years from now. But unless Christ returns, our death is inescapable. But Paul says in verse 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now we know this doesn't mean every person, like there is a universal salvation, and we know this simply by reading the next verse, verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. This resurrection is only for those who belong to Christ. And so the question is, do you belong to Christ? Have you given yourself to Christ? Have you surrendered yourself to Christ? Have you made Christ Lord of your life? Have you placed yourself under new ownership, the ownership of the Lord Jesus Christ? If you have, you have a certain hope in your resurrection from the dead. And if you have not, today is the day to do it because tomorrow is not promised and you don't want to miss this train. So for those who trust in Christ, because of the resurrection of Christ, we have a certain hope in our resurrection. Now this is only good news if we are resurrected to a better place, right? I mean, if we are just simply reincarnated back into a fallen and broken world full of sadness and disease and death, it's not a wonderful hope. And so Paul assures us not only a certain hope in a future resurrection, but also a certain hope in a final victory. Look at verse 24 with me. Paul says, then comes 
the end. That's the end of this world when Jesus returns. It says when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Friends, this is such good news. We are surrounded by enemies on every side, whether it be the coronavirus or political corruption or broken families or our own deceptive, sinful hearts. And we can be tempted to think that God has abandoned us, that he has left us to our own devices. But what this passage reminds us here is that Because the resurrection is true and because God has given Jesus all authority, Christ is working out his kingdom today. That's why Jesus says in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Did you know this? Did you know that at this very second, Jesus is reigning from heaven with all authority? He's fighting against your enemies and my enemies and his enemies. And he is in the process of making all things new, of bringing forth his kingdom, so ultimately one day he could present it to the Father. Jesus is destroying all enemies, even death itself. Paul continues to make one clarification. It's a little bit of a side, but it's, it's, it's clarifying that Jesus has authority over all powers except the supreme power. Verse 27, he says, For God has put all things in subjection under his feet, but when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain he has accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all. Now, that's a little bit of a tongue twister, and I know it sounds a bit confusing, but basically Paul is just making sure that we understand that God the Father is still ultimately in control of all things, that Jesus did not usurp his authority that God the Father is not under Jesus' authority. Jesus is equal to the Father in deity, yet functionally, he is subordinate to him. Now, don't miss the main point of these verses, which is this, that in Christ, we have a certain hope of a final victory, that Jesus is going to win, and he will annihilate all of his and our enemies. This is a wonderful and certain and calming hope. Let me illustrate this way. I don't know if you caught it, but this past Sunday, a local TV channel re-aired Super Bowl 55. It was from the year 2010 when the Packers played the Steelers. And I thought it'd be fun to watch with my family, especially since the kids were young when this happened. One of them had just been born. And so I DVR'd it, which means I recorded it electronically. And later that night, we were watching the game as a family. And it was surprising how much I forgot and how fun and exciting it was. The Packers started out with a great, with a great jump. Uh, In the first quarter near the end of it, they scored two touchdowns, one on a, on an amazing pass and one on an amazing interception. But then starting in the second quarter, things started to go bad. The Steelers scored 17 unanswered points. During that time, Donald Driver got hurt. Tremont Williams got hurt. Charles Woodson, who was our team captain, broke his collarbone, and he was out for the rest of the game. 
The Packers receivers were dropping balls that would be first downs and maybe touchdowns. Things were not looking good at all. Then in the fourth quarter, with about four minutes left, it was 25-28. Packers were winning. The Packers were driving down the field with about, again, four minutes left, trying to seal the victory. And as we sat on the edge of our seats, watching the game, Aaron Rodgers throws the ball deep. And at that moment that the ball was in the air, my DVR stopped. The, the recording stopped. Now, I have to admit that I was a little frustrated, just a little bit. But it wasn't unnerving. I wasn't anxious. I didn't panic then or when, when these passes had been dropped or when these key players got injured. I didn't get scared. Do you know why? Because I knew who won the game. I knew how it ended. I knew that when the final whistle blew, we were going to be the victors. Friends, right now, there are a lot of opportunities for fear and anxiety and panic. Whether we have to go to the grocery store and we're worried about staying six feet from other people or who has touched our food, or whether you have a sore throat and you wonder, could it be? Or whether you are laying on your deathbed. But Christian, the good news is this. We know how the story ends. When the clock on this world hits triple zero, when the final whistle blows, we have a certain hope because of the resurrection of Christ that we too will be raised from the dead and we will be raised to dwell with a victorious king in a victorious kingdom where all of our enemies, Satan, sorrow, sickness, sin, and yes, even death will be eradicated. Since Christ is risen, Not only is our faith effectual and our future hopeful, but our fight is meaningful. Verse 29, Paul says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? Now, I will admit this is a crazy verse. It's a difficult verse to understand. The dead could mean our own flesh. It could mean uh, people of the faith who died before Christ's resurrection. I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. But notice here, Paul does not command people to do this, nor does he endorse it. Rather, Paul is using this as another proof that that our souls long for a physical bodily resurrection. And so Paul continues telling us that it is because of the truth of the resurrection, that he and we should live a meaningful, radical, self-sacrificial life. In light of Christ's resurrection and of our resurrection, Paul asks this question, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? In Paul's missionary journeys, he was beaten, lost at sea, shipwrecked, left for dead. At times, Paul had no food or no water or no shelter. And yet he went back out on another missionary journey and another missionary journey. And Paul is saying, why would I do this if Christ's resurrection and my resurrection are not real? Verse 31 again, he says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus, our Lord. I die every day. Of course, Paul isn't talking about a physical death, but he's saying that he dies to his own comforts. He dies to his own agendas so that he might live a meaningful life for God. Verse 32, what do I gain if humanly speaking, I fought 
with wild beasts at Ephesus. These wild beasts probably refer to the human opponents that Paul had in Ephesus. But notice Paul says he fought. Paul fought. What did Paul fight for? Paul fought to share the good news of the resurrection of Jesus with others, to share that Jesus is not dead, but Jesus is alive. And that one day those who trust in Christ will also rise into his victorious kingdom. But it is not all Paul fought for or is encouraging us to fight for. He continues and he says, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. In other words, if there is no resurrection, you should just live to, 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 to desperately grasp all the pleasures of this world, which some of us are doing and all of us are tempted to do. And he says in verse 33, do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Paul is calling us not only to fight for the sake of sharing the good news of the resurrection, but we must also fight in order to live consistently with the truth of the joy of the resurrection. We must fight to put worldly ways behind us. We must fight to put sin to death. We must fight to know God and to make him known. Fight to know God and make him known because God is the greatest pleasure, the greatest treasure, the greatest purpose our life can possibly know. In the most recent episode of Getting the Gospel Out, I was introduced to a new term, FOMO, F-O-M-O. All of the cool kids probably know that term and are probably laughing at me right now, but FOMO means fear of missing out. It is an anxiety that something wonderful is happening somewhere else and they were not there to experience it. The website verywellmind.com tells you how to cope with FOMO. One recommendation is to change your focus. Instead of focusing on what you lack, focus on what you have. Another recommendation is to keep a journal. Instead of posting everything on social media to get likes, just write it down for yourself to enjoy and appreciate. And it also recommends that we seek out real connection, that we find real relationships, not virtual relationships, because that's healthier for us. I think all three of these things are good advice. But it will never, ever cure FOMO. You know, we can make fun of teens and young adults who have FOMO. But the reality is, all of us have FOMO. All of us have a fear of missing out because we all know deep down inside something is missing from our life. That our souls are restless and unsatisfied. That there is a hole in our hearts. And so we try to fill this FOMO hole with social media, romance, money, achievement, sports, power, fame, comfort, alcohol. And the list can go on and on and on. You name it. And we have tried to fill the FOMO of our life with that. And yet all of these simply leave us with a greater case of FOMO than we had before. Because deep down inside, we still know there has to be something more. There has to be something that we, that we there has to be something that will calm our anxious souls. There has to be something that will fill that God-shaped hole in our hearts. Friends, here is what the Apostle Paul is saying in these verses. Don't fear missing out on the pleasures of this world, which never satisfy. Fear missing out knowing 
the greatness of God and knowing God himself, which wholly satisfies. Fear missing out on intimacy with God, which grows as we pursue righteousness. Fear missing out on the pleasure of the resurrection, both in this world and in the world to come. Your fight for others and for righteousness is meaningful. Fight the good fight of faith in this life so you and those around you can enjoy all the pleasures of the resurrection in this life and in the life to come. Let me end with this. I just want to end with the words of Jesus and then a few thoughts, a question in particular. Jesus says in John eleven twenty five, 25, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. And then Jesus asks this penetrating question. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Jesus died for your sins, rose on the third day, ascended into heaven where he is ruling and reigning? Do you believe that he is coming back again to judge the living and the dead, to give new life to our mortal bodies and to conquer all of his and our enemies? Do you believe this? Do you believe that Christ is risen? If you believe, your faith is effectual to rescue you from your sins. You for, your future is hopeful of a resurrected body in a victorious kingdom. And your fight is meaningful as we seek to know God and make him known. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for the good news of the resurrection. Thank you for the evidence of the resurrection that we can have a certain and firm foundation. Lord God, pray that you will help our souls to rest and rejoice in the reality that right now you are alive. And we pray this in your name. Amen. I want to try something. Kids, can you get your signs out? Uh, we have a tradition here at Jacob's Well Church on Easter. I say three times, Christ is risen. And after each time you respond, he is risen indeed. And so kids, I want you to hold up your signs as you shout out, he is risen indeed, okay? And this is for the adults too. So you shout out as well, he is risen indeed, okay? You ready? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hear now God's benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.